Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> On December 9th of 2019, White Island, a active volcano island in New Zealand, explosively erupted. The island was a popular tourist destination known for its volcanic uh, um, activity. That day, 47 people were on the island during the eruption. 22 of them died at the moment of the explosion or later from injuries sustained, including two whose bodies were never found. 25 more people uh, were, um, suffered injuries, most needing intensive care for severe burns. In 2020, Netflix and Amazon created a documentary about this disaster where the survivors um, describe the moment of the eruption as being embraced, suddenly embraced by a dark cloud of, um, mixed with ashes and toxic gases. They remember the intense heat and that it was hard for them to breathe due to those in, uh, toxic gases. Some of them even remember uh, their, 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 skin, their skin peeling off and falling to the ground as they were running away from the crater, escaping from their lives. In the documentary, the person interviewing the survivors asked, what do you think when you realized that the volcano was uh, erupting? All they said, I thought I was going to die. I thought I was not going to make it. I thought, this is it. This is the end. A young lady said the following thing. I have never been a religious person, but at that moment, I prayed to God to save me. I have never been a religious person, but at that moment, I prayed to God to save me. And with that in mind, I would like to invite Tyler Coleman to come forward and to read the word of God for us. Please stand for the reading of the word of God. Reading from Romans 1, 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The subject that I will address today is a very unpopular subject in our secular culture. Uh, but not only in our secular culture, but actually in the culture of the church in general. You know, there is a certain aversion or um, <clears throat> uh, a certain aversion or not willingness to address uh, this topic. In 2021, Dr. Green, 
analyzes the culture in higher education in America. Uh, and he based his analysis on uh, an article that is called When Nice Will Not Suffice. In his analysis, Dr. Green complains about the inability of the professor to give genuine and honest feedback to his students because students will get upset and mad, uh, mad at the professors. In a culture of nice, Dr. Green says, teachers and students generally focus on compliments or strength in their interactions with one another. Everything has to be positive to make sure that conflict is avoided at all costs. To make sure that uh, conflict is avo avoided at all costs in order to preserve some semblance of harmony. Even if people are having really strong negative reactions to something, there is a concerted effort to avoid conflict. Green also describes this phenomenon as we stay at the surface with our conversations, at the surface level with our conversations. That is, we don't allow anything to go deeper or probe into anything that could possibly make us vulnerable. Now, this culture of nice is very pervasive. It is not a phenomenon that only occurs in higher education. It only occurs and also describes the reality in businesses, arts, sports, politics, everywhere. It is everywhere. So our general secular culture can be described as a culture of nice. In the text that I will address today, Paul does not care about being nice or about hurting someone's feeling. He delivers his message and is brutally honest because he knows what is at stake. He says things that in our culture of nice may, as we say, rock the boat or obsess the status quo. How dare you, our culture of nice would say, how dare you saying that the loving God of the Bible is angry against me? How dare you even say that there is a God who is directing his wrath toward me? But Paul is not, is not going to sugarcoat the reality of an angry God. So that's why in, in Romans, in Romans 1, uh, 18, Paul begins a new section. This, this section introduces an uh, extended explanation of the content of the gospel in the most systematic way for Paul. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he defined what the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In chapter <clears throat> In this new section, uh, in this new section in verse, uh, beginning in verse 18, he tells us about what should be included as part of the gospel message. And in doing so, Paul will explain the gospel like being in a courtroom where God is the judge, man is the accused, and Paul is acting as God's prosecuting attorney. And as God's, uh, as God's prosecuting attorney, Paul acts on God's behalf to bring charges against everyone and the whole of hum the, the whole humankind. And he will show <clears throat> and he will demonstrate 
that man is guilty. So why does Paul bring man to the, uh, bring man to the judgment seat? What is, what is the accusation? Well, the accusation is that man is not righteous. And this creates a huge problem for man because God is righteous. And he demands that man be righteous. So in this section from 1 verse 18 through 3 uh, verse 20, Paul, as God's prosecuting attorney, will rise his case against every single man, and he will demonstrate man's unrighteousness and his inexcusability before holy God. Now, Paul will do this by first presenting an argument against Gentiles. This first argument is directed to Gentiles first. And what I'm going to be doing this morning is that I will break his argument into three parts, and then we will consider each part separately. And then I will try to summarize his argument, and hopefully by the end, you, uh, you and I we will be able to appreciate more what he is saying. <clears throat> so the first thing that Paul says and mentioned in verse, in verse 18 is the wrath of God. Notice that our text says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It doesn't say that the wrath of God was revealed or that the wrath of God will be revealed. It says the wrath of God is revealed, present tense. This means that in this very moment, my sister, sisters, brothers, and friends, in this very moment, as you are sitting on those chairs and I am standing before you, the wrath of God is being revealed in the present, in the now. Also, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, the place where the throne of God is, the heavenly courtroom where angels and archangels witness the display of God's wrath upon humanity. Then the wrath of God is revealed against man's unrighteousness and Ungodliness. What does Paul mean by these two terms? Well, generally speaking, in the Bible, ungodliness refers to man's relationship with God. And it involves a lack of reverence for God, which is displaced in sacrilegious words and deeds. On the other hand, unrighteousness refers horizontally to the violation of human rights, and so it speaks of our relationship with other human beings. Now, what is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? Let me give you two definitions. Charles Hodge defines the wrath of God the following way. The wrath of God is the familiar scriptural term to express any manifestation of the displeasure of, God's, of God against sin. Any manifestation of the displeasure of God against sin. And then John Murray says that wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is on the contradiction, in the contradiction of his holiness. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. In other words, as Reader Boss would say, it is a personal expression of God himself. 
the wrath of God not only says something about what God does, which is punishing sin, but also about what he is in doing it. That is, he's righteous. He is holiness. He is holy. So this means, my dear brothers and sisters and friends, that when God sees man's sinful, sinful deed, his lack of reverence toward God, and the violation of others' uh, men's rights, as God, God's own being basically gets disgusted against men. He is not pleased with what, see, with what he sees in men. And the fire, of his, the fire of his indignation burns against man to destroy him. And this is so because God's holy nature obligates him to punish sin because sin violates his holy character. My dear friends, we never want to experience the wrath of God. It is the most terrifying thing in the whole universe. The doctrine of the wrath of God is as glorious as terrifying. Having considered the wrath of God, we are now ready to move to the second part of Paul's argument against the Gentiles, and that is the reason for the revelation of God's wrath. And the reason is that man suppresses the truth of God. Man suppresses the truth of God. So what is this truth of God? Verse 19 says, what can be known about God? Verse 20 specifies his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, the truth of God is the revelation of God himself. The truth of God is the disclosure of who he is. It's the revelation of his glory that God exists. Now, let us consider or let us notice three features of God's self-revelation according to our text. There are more, but we don't have time to go through all of them. In the first place, God's revelation is clear. God's revelation is clear. This is what theologians call the perspicuity of the revelation of God. Verse 19 says, what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to them. And then in verse 20, God's attributes, such as his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly perceived, clearly perceived. What does this mean? Well, in the first place, it means that every man knows God. This is the heart of uh, Paul's argument against Gentiles. Every man knows God. Every single son and daughter of Adam and Eve knows God. And in this sense, there are not true atheists. Do you hear well? In this sense, there are not true atheists. And this reminds, reminds me of the young lady who said, I have never been a religious person, but at that moment, I prayed to God. That is, when she realized that she was about to die, when she realized that she needed God the most, she cried out to him for help. What would you cry out to someone who doesn't exist unless you really 
and deep in your heart know that he exists. But is it true that God's revelation is always clear? If so, why are there so many atheists? What happened to them? Are they not honest? Are they not um, faithful to their own claims? What about us Christians? Do we experience God's revelation as being clear? And if not, why not? Well, if God's revelation is not clear, the problem is not in the revelation itself. The problem lies at the heart of man. It's not that God's revelation isn't clear, but man's inability to see what is right before his eyes. You see, man's problem is not an intellectual, but a moral problem. Notice that our text uh, says that God's knowledge is plain to them because God made it known to them. Do you hear well? God himself has made it known to them, this knowledge. And this phrase speaks uh, of the efficacy of God's self-revelation, the effectiveness of God's revelation. That is, when God communicates something to men, he makes sure that man gets the message. He makes sure that man gets the message. You see, in a, he, God actually is an excellent communicator. And even better, he is the archetype communicator. That means that we communicate because he communicates in the first place. We speak because he speaks in the first place. And when he speaks, he conveys his message in a way that is clear and effective. We can't charge God of, with being unclear or not explaining himself. I remember my first year in seminary when my English was bad. Well, it is still bad, but back then <laughs> it was really bad. It was really bad. At the end of every class, I felt anxious uh, about the professor asking, are there any questions? Because I did have questions. But I didn't want to ask my questions because I was afraid of being misunderstood, uh, either for my accent, my intonation, my conjunctions, my prepositions, whatever. So I would get frozen and not ask any questions because I didn't want to enter into a cycle of clarifying questions from my professor to me about my questions and, and, and kind of end up uh, asking, what do you mean by what do you mean by what do you mean? Do you know what I mean? So because of that, I would not ask any questions. But you know, with, with God, that never happened. He's an excellent communicator. When he communicates, the message gets across. That is for sure. The, the, the fact that he is the one who is communicating is an assurance that his message will get <clears throat> through. Now, the second feature of God's revelation is that God's revelation is God's own initiative. In other words, if man is going to know anything about God, if man, man is going to be able to predicate anything about God, absolutely anything, then God has to be willing to reveal himself. Otherwise, man would never be able to predicate, know, or say anything about God. This is what theologians call the knowability of God. God will have to be willing to reveal himself 
to man. It is an act. God's revelation is an, is an act of God's condescension. And, you know, God has revealed himself. And this is Paul's main, main argument against Gentiles. God has taken the initiative to unveil himself, to disclose himself, so that you men can know him and predicate and say anything about him. But despising God's initiative, you men, Paul says, suppress this truth of God. The, the last feature of God's revelation that I want to share with you is that God's self-revelation is all-encompassing. Now, what, what do I mean by that? I mean that it is located in creation, okay? It is located in creation, and therefore, it is everywhere. It is abrasive. We can escape it. It is everywhere. No matter how hard man tries, he will not be able to escape, uh, to escape God's revelation. To God's revelation in creation... We call it, in theology, natural revelation. The Westminster Standards call it the, uh, uh, the, the light of nature. Look, verse 20 says that his attributes, that is, his eternal power um, and his divine nature are clearly perceived. Since when? It says, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That means that the whole creation reveals something about God. I'm pretty sure that you have heard the most famous, probably the most famous quote by Abraham Kuyper that says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, let me modify this, the most famous quote by Abraham Kuyper, right? Later, you can tell me how I did but this is my attempt to modify it so that it is going to fit with the context of our sermon. Listen, there is no a square inch in the whole domain of our created order over which God, who is sovereign over all, does not reveal himself saying, I am, I exist. So from the smaller macroorganism to the largest uh, from the smallest microorganism to the largest macroorganism, everything reveals something about God. And wherever man goes, God's revelation is there. It is inescapable. Again, verse 20 says, uh, in the things that have been made. This means that God's revelation from, from man or for man is both. It is external and it is internal. It is external in the things that he sees outside himself, but it is also internal in the things that he sees inside himself, his own self. That means that, that man's own body, spirit, and mind reveal God because he was created after the image of God. So man himself, by the very act of being, reveals the existence of God. He has been fearfully and wonderfully made. But man suppresses the revelation of God in creation externally and internally as well. After considering some features of God's self-revelation in creation, let us now consider what Paul means by suppressing the truth of God. 
How does man suppress the truth of God? Well, man suppresses the truth of God the following way. Man sees a caterpillar becoming a butterfly and says, Ha ha! Look how wise is our mother nature. Man sees the Niagara Falls and instead of saying, How great thou art. He says, oh, look at what the Big Bang did. Man says the millions and billions of stars in the universe, and instead of saying, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, he says, look at what chance can do. Nothing plus nothing equals a perfectly tuned universe. Wow, that, my brothers and sisters and friends here, is called suppressing the truth of God. Let me give you an illustration that is not mine. But have you ever played volleyball in a pool? Yeah. Have you ever tried to keep the ball under the water, like pushing it down? What happens when you do that? That the ball is going to try to come up, right, to the surface again. What will happen if you try to keep the ball under the water for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or one hour or, or longer maybe? Well, you might get bored or tired, right? And what is going to happen? Eventually, the ball will come up to the surface again. And if you do not push in the right direction, the ball will shoot right in any direction and will try again to come to the surface, right? So that's the idea of Paul um, when he says that man suppresses the truth of God. Man pushes, pushes down and the knowledge of God, which is clear, efficacious, all-encompassing, and unavoidable, pushes back to the surface. Because no matter how hard man tries, God's voice cannot be completely silenced. For that reason, from time to time, the knowledge of God comes to the surface, like with the lady at the beginning of my sermon. I have never been a religious person, but at that moment, I prayed to God to save me. You know what happened? At the moment when she realized she was about to die, she stopped suppressing the truth of God, and she prayed to him. So what is Paul's conclusion in verse 20? So they are without excuse. No one can say, God, I did not know you, or if only you have left more evidence of your existence, I would have believed in you. No, no, no. The reality, my dear brothers, is that men can't play ignorance. He can say, sorry for not believing in you, for not worshiping you, for not seeking you. Men can do that. God has made it clear. But, men, but the problem of men is that he suppresses the truth. Now, let me summarize what Paul has been saying up until now. Let me pull all the parts of his argument together um, and, and see if you can see what, what he is saying or what he has said all, uh, up until now. As God's prosecuting attorney, 
Paul brings charges to the whole humankind, and in this section especially uh, against Gentiles. And his first argument is that God has revealed himself and that this revelation is clear, is efficacious, is God's initiative, is all-encompassing, and therefore man is without excuse when he suppresses the truth of God. So the anger of God, the fury of God, it's inflamed against men to destroy him because he suppresses the truth of God. This is the problem that the Gentiles are in. So Paul has have left every man condemned on the, the wrath of God. They have no excuse. My brothers and sisters, this is a terrible doctrine. It is Terrible news. Are there any solution? And if so, what is the solution? How do we escape from the wrath of God? How do we appease the wrath of God? Well, yes, there is a solution. There is a solution, actually. And the solution is found in another kind of revelation, Another kind of revelation. Before speaking of the revelation of God's wrath, in verse 17, Paul speaks of another kind of revelation, the revelation of the righteousness of God, which, by the way, is the title for uh, the, the theme of our series in Romans. The way to appease the wrath of God is a full and most complete, most excellent, and most uh, perfect and final revelation. That is, the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, whose gospel Paul preaches. The gospel that he defines as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look at the text in verse 18, begins with the conjunction for. And this word for is a connecting word that connects the theme of the wrath of God with the preaching of the gospel, with Paul's definition of what the gospel is. And it con uh, so the conjunction provides the reason for Paul, for Paul preaching the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is so desperately needed because man is in deadly, serious problems with God. You know, man's biggest problem is not the devil or any other created being. Man's biggest problem is God himself. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. So when you think about your salvation, or when you, when you think about your sins, I would encourage you, yes, the Bible says that we are safe from sin, that we are safe from its power, its rule, its consequences. But in a final, in an ultimate uh, sense, we are safe from the wrath of God, the final consequence of sin. And here is the thing, brothers and sisters, friends, only God can save us from God. Only God can save us from God. And my dear friends, God in Christ solved the problem. 
God in Christ appeased the wrath of God. Isaiah 53:10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Do you hear that? To crush him. And then in Hebrew 10, verse 31, God is described in a very terrifying way. God himself is being described here. And, he's, and, and, and the uh, author of Hebrews says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Christ himself fell into the hands, into the consuming hands of God and received the wrath of God so that if you and I believe, we won't receive God's wrath if we believe in Christ. In my introduction, I give you a short analysis of the culture of nice by Dr. Carlton Green. Let me share with you one more thing he said about it. He says, what can often happen in the context of students' affairs is that we will try not to, uh, that we will not risk talking about anything that is difficult because we want to stay focused on helping people to move forward. But we stay away from anything that can feel challenging or, difficulty or, uh, or difficult or upsetting. And you know what is that? Why is that? Because our current culture wants to be nice to one another. It's faking it the whole time. But in this niceness, it is always hidden hatred, dishonesty, and a lack of real interest for people. With God, my dear brothers, that is not the case. It does not matter how hard the truth may be. He will tell us, tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear, even if he doesn't seem to be nice. And you know what? The thing is that God isn't nice. God is good, and he is in your best interest. He will not stay at the surface level in the conversation just so that you won't get offended or feel hurt. He will go deep into the root of the problem so that you can see what needs to be fixed. Now, what are the benefits of reflecting upon God's wrath as we have done it uh, today? Well, in the first place, I would like to encourage you um, by what we have learned today, it, it should give us confidence when we share the gospel with others. Okay, confidence with unbelievers, agnostics, atheists, because they know God. Deep in their heart, they know God. So that, that is one application for our sermon today. Another application is that uh, we should think about those hard things that God may be telling us. What things we should change what things need to be fixed. And, and finally, one of the benefits of reflecting upon God's wrath is that in that way, we can see and appreciate more the love and the grace of God. The love and the grace of God are appreciated even more when it is contrasted with the wrath and the judgment 
of God against sinner. So let us now celebrate that God's wrath has been taken by Jesus himself, and we no longer are under his condemnation. Please stand for the participation of the Lord's Supper.